David A. Price presents... folks welcome to marvel noise episode 327 i'm your host steve raker down in the comic book bunker where the days are cold but they are getting longer it's a good time of year to curl up with some comics and dive into them and then talk about them with your friends and, and then rub them all over your body <laughs> bag them and rebag them in this episode as we have been lucky to have for almost every episode are my pals and partners in crime, WWX Kevin and Andrew the L.A. Rabbit. Hello, folks. Before we get to the Marvel Tales portion of our show, I should first mention that we are on Twitter, we have a Facebook page, and we have a sister show, Indie Comic Book Noise, where various configurations of us guys over here talk about the indie books that we're digging on. We are proudly part of the Deliberate Noise Network, but we are also just as proudly sponsored by nobody. So it's anything goes, except no potty language. We are going to be looking at Strange Tales, issues 101 through 107 from back at the birth of the Marvel Universe proper. But first I want to share a couple of the recent books that I have read, and current books, and I invite you guys to do the same. First one up is a quickie. Marvel Comics Presents is back, you guys. I heard it. I got the first issue. Has more than one come out? I don't know. I have just read the first issue myself. Under a nice Art Adams cover, which features Wolverine and Namor and Captain America, who are the three characters that get 10-page stories within. I believe I I was even requested to possibly cover this one, and I'm like, sorry, I didn't buy it. The Wolverine in the brown outfit, too. Yeah, that that one's going to be a serial. Now it's the part one, written by Charles uh, Soule, with art by Paolo Sakura and Oren Jr., and then there was a 10-page Namor and a 10-page Cap story as well. The Namor one by Greg Pak and Tom Coker, and the Cap one by Ann Nascenti, with art by Greg Land and Jay Leaston. Those two both were like period pieces, both taking place. At, oh no, I think just the Namor one was back in World War II, like right at the time the bombs were dropping. But the Cap one is almost a timeless story. It's like a little hometown, street level, motorcycle riding, neighborhood tale. I think that's the, the M.O. of the book, right? To have one timeless tale through the decades? Well, I guess we'll see as the pattern develops. In the latest solicits, they had, like, we're into the 80s now with Venom. Huh. Like, cool. They start in the 40s, so it makes sense, I guess. I very much enjoyed the old Marvel Comics Presents back in the day, so I think it's fun that they're going trying to do this. I'll give it a whirl for a while, but this wasn't the strongest showing for a first issue, I'll say, say that much. I was also hoping they would choose one of the serials to feature a more random, less used type character. 
Yes. I know you have to have a big character, but one of the things I always enjoyed were they would sometimes have like a one-off of some, or even a short, you know, five-parter of lesser-used type, the Shroud or whatever. Yep. Agreed. Or some pinups or something. I mean, I do plan, if I see issue two, I will grab it, but I'm not sure how much I'm, like, if I miss it, I don't know that I'm going to go out of my way to grab it, but I like you, I have such fond memories of the first title that there's a lot of goodwill in the bank to be squandered. You'll grab it, you're just not sure if it's going to grab you. Exactly. Well, <laughs> long-time listeners, no doubt, have probably remarked that as long as it shows up on my radar, I'm pretty good. But there are only a handful of titles that I will actively seek out, and if they sell out, I'll go to a different store or something like that. But most titles, if I can get them, great. And if not, it's a sign from the Marvel gods or the indie gods or the DC gods that I can let it go. What have you guys been reading? Guardians of the Galaxy. Have you been? I read the first issue. I read the two <laughs> I read one and two. That's why I was happy to uh, get my comics yesterday because I was like, "Oh, I have the two Because usually, like Andrew is always like, "I got two and I'm like, "I only have the one." This relaunch of Guardians of the Galaxy is with a new number one, and it is featuring the Thanos Wins arc creative team of Donnie Cates and Jeff Shaw. I thought the first issue like. It's a cute premise, right? Like, Thanos has a will because he was killed by Gamora. He was beheaded. And then there's this whole, like, John Carpenter's thing, um, Red Scare type of thing, where Thanos could be implanted in some other being and be rebirthed. So, like, who is it? Who is he hiding inside of? That was a, a fun enough premise. But then the response of the... So then let's kill everyone, like, starting with, like, <laughs> Odin and, like, all the people on the list. It's like, give me a break. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I, I, but, I, I mean, whatever, I guess, to advance the story along. Some of these dudes are ridiculous, though. Then the other thing is the Black Order, Thanos' old minions there, they hijack nowhere? Is that even possible? Like, is it a ship? I thought it was a floating celestial head. I don't see a reason why they couldn't make it into a ship, though. Like, if you have the know-how. You'd have to have the jets and the fuel and the controls yeah. and the bridge and... Uh... Or or maybe fragments of Cosmic Cube or some dilithium or something, right? I like the twist of that the Black Order is attacking to steal Thanos' body for, let's just say, an interested party. I thought that was a, a good... A catch, a good hook. Um, but then they all get kind of like sucked into a black hole portal kind of a thing, and Beta Ray Bill, Cosmic Ghost Rider, and a few others make it out and are rescued by Peter Quill and Groot, who is all that's left of the Guardians of the Galaxy that we know. We don't mention Rocket. I guess he's a sore subject. <laughs> that's right. So were you hoping for a different lineup from all the characters that were on this cover? Oh, I don't care about that so much because if it's going to be the cosmic book, then I sort of felt like it was more of a thing where they were going to try to draw on a bigger cast and it just depends on whoever they're looking at this month or for this arc rather than, uh, you know, here are the um, 
12 new possible Avengers, which ones are going to be on the team and which aren't. Because, like, everybody's on the cover, right? I mean, all the... With the Thanos body snatching, I'm very late to the game, but a month ago I finally got around to playing the Guardians Telltale game. Steve, you reviewed it as it was coming out contemporaneously, but that was a plot point in that that video game. I don't know if you remember, because you were... You or maybe your kids are playing it as it was coming out, and I'm two years after it was released. Yeah, I don't remember it. That part made me laugh a little bit, because that happens in the story, and you have to decide what to do if you sell the body to the collector or give it to the the Nova Corps. Ah. Having read the first two issues, probably my one small editorial thing is because the cast kind of shifts around, because there's going to be a lot of players it's the cosmic book as you noted steve they're going to also have everybody in it and shifting alliances maybe just a little those little tiny heads with their names underneath it at times that'd be cool i'm pretty sure i get everybody but because everybody's shifting around and it's a huge especially by the end of two we're probably talking 30 some odd characters or close to that have been referenced. Oh, dude, now you got me thinking, what if they did like the floating heads on the splash page on the sides, like the old justice <laughs> league or JSA books. Yes. That would be awesome. Something, Just something quick, uh, to help keep those of us that are slow in the tote board going. I remember I always liked, I think Hickman's Avengers too. Always had yes. that with all the different tote boards and, and it was just real quick. And nice, and it helped if you put some space. Luckily, I read these two issues pretty close together, but always good to help have memory things. Kevin, could this be the answer to the, for God knows why it's a, such a problem, but the problem of telling comic book stories with the movie Guardians of the Galaxy cast together? I mean, no one, that was the big thing, was they were going to make the Guardians of the Galaxy, right? And they made a, a Star-Lord a blonde so he would be like uh, like the movie. And they made the movie cast, and they got Bendis on the book. And I don't know how many issues in, two, three issues, and he broke the team up. And then the next writer comes in and breaks the team all up into pieces. And uh, wh- maybe the idea is don't even try to have them be a team to begin <laughs> with. Yeah, this felt good. <laughs> I guess they, if you start with them broken up, you can't go to them breaking up, right? Right. There you go. It's just kind of funny. That, and, they're, and they're sort of like a, a non-team. So did you not read the first one at all, Kevin? Are you skipping it? Just be taking my advice of like, they don't put anything in the first issue. I can jump in on the second one. No, I bought both. Are you, are you crazy? I pre-ordered that. Once I saw the creative team, I'm like, I I want in on that. Oh, I wasn't sure, because you said you picked up two, so I'm like, whoa, what if Kevin's just like, <laughs> I can, I don't need those first issues. They'll be in discount bins at the con next year. <laughs> and I guess we have... Okay, so do you think there's a, a first appearance of a team in the second issue? <laughs> this is always an interesting thing, and I would say, yeah. So we have a team... The Guardians team. You're not talking about that one. No, I'm you not mean talking... the team at the end of the book? Yeah. Or kind of in the middle? Everything is there except they're not named except for the next issue box where they, they are basically named, right? So I'm thinking this is a new team. Wait, the next issue box. I didn't read that. I'm reading it now. <laughs> it's okay. Wait, you're, 
That can't be the name. That's a goofy. Ugh. I don't know. What is this DC Comics? You can't just put <laughs> some kind of appellation in front of the regular name and have it be a. That's two DC references already tonight. We we should have a little bell that goes off when we do that. <laughs> I mean, it could just be a nickname and not the actual name, but that that's basically it. Seems like a new team has come together. I have a feeling that alliances are going to shift though. And these yeah. teams, we've already seen one of those players started on the Guardians and shifted off. Or did they? Ooh. I can't wait to read issue number two. <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny with issue number two, it starts with like that nine panel grid, and I'm like, this is what, this is what the, the, the Guardians we love did. Yeah, right? It was just funny to see, like, if it was intentional or not. It's a funny callback. And Star-Lord's, like, drunk dialing Kitty Pride. I'm like, this is a good start. <laughs> so if you like this, I have a feeling this will be the Cosmic. If you like any of the Cosmic characters, name, uh, you know, 25 of them, and one of them is going to be in one of these two issues. I have a feeling, so... If you're into the really obscure ones, you have a less of a chance, but it's got pretty much a big number of them. So, and that dude from Annihilation that no one's used in years, rescued from obscurity. Oh, the Wraith or whatever. Yeah, I'm like, why isn't anyone using this guy? <laughs> Maybe we'll find the, out. Yeah, <laughs> the uh, the other subtle because what the other thing that's interesting is the cover blurb has a pretty small strike force for the next issue but in the issue itself it's a much larger team because I'm totally down with the Black Knight <laughs> uh, Space Black Knight version that is <laughs> Space Knight I don't yes Space Knight Dane Whitman Space Knight Coast. but he's got the old timey giant bucket head on so it's going to be interesting I am slightly thinking I might be reading these in chunks because of the large casts. It depends on how they end up pacing it out. But sometimes these books with like so many rotating characters can get on top of me in a hurry. Did you guys at all read any of the recent genre one-shots with the like classic Golden Age, Silver Age titles? Like they did a horror book. Crypt of Shadows, and a war book, War is Hell, a sci-fi yeah. book, Journey into Unknown Worlds, and a western, The Gunhawks. I thought of reading the horror one, because some of them were just like so weird off-the-wall stuff, and I was like, I don't know what that is. Not that that's a problem. I'm uh, like, just weird, really weird stuff, and then like the creative team didn't thrill me. Like, what were I... they, 48-page stories on top of that? I only picked up one of them, uh, Love Romances. Oh. Oh, I didn't get that one yet. the most recent one. Uh, I really like the cover on it. As, you know, Andy, always buying books for the covers, because <laughs> I'm an idiot. It uh, said it was a number one. <laughs> uh, it was just, I don't know, something about the cover was very evocative. I think this is something that's meant to be, when they collect all of these and do like a trade, is probably a much better way to go about doing it. Well, I feel like the paper... Uh, when you're doing this nostalgic stuff, 
like having modern art and modern paper and modern printing. Yeah, I don't know. A... It's, I would have liked some more of an attempt at throwing back to what these things were, but I guess that wasn't the, you know, that's my take on it, not what they wanted to do, and I think that that would have hit me a lot. Isn't the whole point of this nostalgia? But I guess not. I think it's fun to see them do the different genres that are not the capes. I mean, I, I, in a selfish way, this is probably about using the titles so that they're trademarked for another X number of years. But I thought it was just fun to see the modern Marvel do a cowboy story. Uh, the Gunhawks one was written by uh, the Laphams with art by uh, Luca Pizzari. And it was the ballad of Dead Man Donnelly. One tale through the whole issue, and it's basically like a sheriff, the old cliche of a sheriff protecting his town from bandits who are coming in, but the bandits see the sheriff as a butcher because of something the sheriff did years before, and he has to decide who uh, he belongs to. It's an interesting story. A good old western. I, I miss westerns. I miss the war stories, too. There was the... War is Hell book had a Howard Jenkins story that was a Air Force World War II Luftwaffe story with a battle in it, and then there was a twist that was like an ironic jazz twist, let's say. Mm. And the second story in the War is Hell was called War Devil, and that had like a supernatural angle. That was written by a friend of mine, Philip Kennedy Johnson, with art by Alberto Albuquerque. And it's like a supernatural folk war story chronicling this contagious madness that's going through these different war zones. But within it, I mean, there was just some really cool moments that you just don't get when you're reading superhero stories. I mean, there was one where where in that War Devil story where the writer is describing like being in a in a hyper-alert, oversaturated, fight-or-flight type state, and describes the person as as acting like they were hearing gunfire playing nonstop in their head. It looked like they could equally be ready to cut you or run away at any moment, and, and their eyes didn't make any sense at all. It's it's just fun to get into those narratives of, of the different genres. The Crypt of Shadows one was all written by Al Ewing. It was three stories, but it they were they tied together. I think this stuff is fun. It's just hard for me to to read a western. <laughs> like that would probably be like, if I was going to rank like <laughs> this types of stories I'm interested in. Like westerns is pretty low on the on the totem pole there. Well, I just the love and romance has four pieces there's a silent piece that's very nice in it generally but i don't know i think a romance comics i think a simon and kirby and those are two pretty big shoes to fill in and not to knock the current crop of artists that they chose but they didn't pick any one of those sorts of stature i mean i guess you could say there is no one with those stature but uh, the silent story is nice i don't know i just i think it's a cool genre romance comics i know steve we enjoyed the heavy romance influence those early daredevil issues had sure and it makes a fun that kind of melodrama but i think that lends itself way more to the 
serial ongoing nature is another problem where obviously there's so many great one and done short horror and war stories that I feel like, I don't know, maybe the romance one is, is more less suited to that, but I'm sure romance comics fans will take me to task. I like how in the end of each issue too, they did a couple of pages of like a little editorial where they looked back at the genre and Marvel's history publishing it. And at least in some of the cases, they took one of one of the writers of the issue and had them pick some of their favorite issues in that genre and say why. It's kind of cool. See a couple of little pictures and hear Howard Schenken talk about the war comics he liked or whatever. <laughs> the The romance is just a one-page text piece on the history. And the second one has some of the editor's picks, but it's pretty. it's only five issues. I, I think... I would tell people maybe wait till they're... I'm sure they're going to put all these in one trade somewhere. And that might be the way to go to save on effort and hassle. Just think someone could have trademarked the Ziggy Pig and Silly Seal all this time. Yeah, right? Well, if I see that one, I'll probably pick that one up. (laughs) I mean, let's be honest. (laughs) The funny animals did sort of survive in a way. All right, Kevin, so did you not want to talk about Daredevil then? You want to save that? Save? You mean like for like six issues, 12 issues to cover at one time? I don't I don't know what you mean, Andrew. Because you were, say, said you didn't want to talk about Daredevil, and I didn't well, know that's, that's you didn't buy it. But you're, but you're actually talking about it already. I think Steve was like, was like the Scarlet Witch, and he's like, no bad comics. Was That, that was here, right? But you guys didn't like the genre comics, and Marvel Comics Presents wasn't that great. You gotta bring us... I I thought this new Daredevil reboot, as you know, to continue with my negative Nancy, I stopped reading the miniseries that was the bridge. Yeah. I read the first two issues and quit. I really think I would suggest people just jump right into this. Yeah. Chip Zdarsky, Marco Cicchetto, uh, Color Sunny Go... Push. The art's nice. It's Daredevil. He's back. He's popular with the ladies. Setting up the mystery. Having the more playful Daredevil, except he's having problems with his abilities and his skills. And obviously the Kingpin is featured, not as a the direct villain in this one, but you know they're setting up for down the road. Kingpin, Daredevil. I mean, those are all the classic returns to what you've come to enjoy from Daredevil, which is basically like knockoff Spider-Man. But I didn't know, I didn't know if Kevin would like this because Daredevil's not wearing any armor. I know that's his favorite Daredevil. Wow, going all to town here. I like the art though. Tichetto's good. Yeah, yeah. Read those Shadowland issues if you want to see him doing more work. Yeah, so I'm all on board. I will uh, grab wow. number two. But I guess Kevin, like I said, didn't like it due to lack of armor. <laughs> or... Yeah, um, Fei-Fei wasn't on this issue, so I was like, I'm not down with this. There's no indie sensibility. I want you just ramming all this weird stuff together. And I'm like, I can't believe that isn't in this issue. Now, about the Man Without Fear limited series, I, some people said they really liked that book. So I was like, okay. Wow. I know, he's like, yeah, this is like classic Daredevil, (laughs) he has to come back, and I'm like, cool, that people really really dug that type of thing. 
Yeah, I just quit on it. Did you finish reading the thing, Kevin? Or I read four issues. Wow, lasted more than I did. <laughs> Twice as long. It's hard yeah, when you I... pre-order it. You don't know it's gonna stink. <laughs> <laughs> the first issue was the first issue was fine, but um... <laughs> pregnant pause. I don't know. It was fine. Like, there's not really much to say. Like, all the, all the, you said all the regular stuff is there, and there wasn't something particularly special for me to talk about. So I was just like, I don't know. We can, we can skip the issue. <laughs> yeah, I, I do agree with you. They don't lay much of a hook other than he's having some problems getting back into the swing of things. <laughs> yeah. But the artwork is so pretty, and it it's is. fun to have Daredevil back. And to, in this particular lineup of him being kind of angsty, but also having the ladies come over and that sort of thing. That mix of not all mopey, morose Daredevil, but still being kind of bleak. Yeah, well, you know, Daredevil, they just look at him and they're like, hey, what's going on? Who's behind That's those Foster Grants? <laughs> And then and then Matt's like, you don't want to end up in a mental asylum. And they're like, that's cool. Yeah. And then just, I guess I have just two quick hits after that. I did pick up Hulk Vereen's number one. <laughs> wow. With the Greg Pack, Ario Anenoto. I am not familiar with that artist. But it's quite fun. And it's Hulk, Wolverine, and Weapon H. I'd all imagine... fighting up, and they add, yeah. they they fold the leader in too. Oh come on! There's no Windigo. <laughs> so, oh, I'm the sure joke. that's got to like, be. They have yeah. to be. Yeah, it's basically. I can't imagine like, Weapon H has to be the heel, right? There has rarely been such a crass commercial creature created by Marvel in the last ten years, other than Weapon H, where they're just like. We got to hit every superstar pushed together, so this lets the Hulk and Wolverine take a shot at their cheap knockoff, so to speak. Defense and you throw ass. the leader into like, because that way the leader can manipulate it so that these characters last longer. Because the Hulk has his gamma stealing powers, and that would make it not last very long. So big dumb fun. Like I said, don't we all kind of want to see Weapon H get get it handed to him? Yes. <laughs> A resounding and, yes. And then the other quick one is Savage Sword of Conan, Jerry Dugan, and Ron Garney. Beautiful artwork. I really like Ron is channeling some of the classic feels of the old days. My one... Loved it. My one beef was by invoking this title... Having it on the tiny comic book with our modern paper seems to take a little bit away from it. But that's just old sentimental Andy. There is nothing within the pages, but I would say maybe just take it from Super Steve and get this in digital or something. I don't know. Savage Sword was just so beautiful with its oversized nature. And black and white. Is this black and, black and, white? and white? No, this is color. Yeah, okay. But it's very, like, it's, everybody does a top-notch job. I don't want to knock anybody. Uh, Richard Isanoff is the colorist, and it looks great. And Dugan has, you know, the kind of, Conan is a simple, violent man. 
and he's been shipwrecked and picked up by some pirates. And let's just say it doesn't go well for the pirates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even manacled to another prisoner, he creates doom and death wherever he goes. <laughs> In classic Conan fashion, he, after causing all that mayhem, he gets shipwrecked with the guy he's chained to and then launches into the mystery. Where's the treasure in this map going to lead them? But like I said, brutish. Conan just wants to... It's a young Conan. Not super... Not Conan year one, but like in the younger where he's particularly quick to fight and violent and less about planning out any kind of strategy. I'm sure Conan... At least in my take on Conan is as he ages... He gets more cunning and more strategic about things where the younger stories are more about him just using his savagery and skills to kill his way through all his problems. Well, he always had a certain amount of cunning, but it was at a different scope. He was a cunning thief, you know? He was a cunning pirate once he got into that world. He was cunning sort of at the at whatever role he was at but it took him a little while to get used to it and it, and he had usually adapted pretty well until he was cunning you know on a on a kingdom wide scale as king conan but what i like about the younger conan is part of his strategy is just to quickly strike first yeah just get in there like, there's no parlay there's no clever like he sees you he'll just attack you no yeah get in there and i'll handle it where I feel like older Conan is likely to assess the situation. He's not just going to run in and cut everyone's head off. He's going to look at the situation and see what's the best way to go and cut everyone's head off. So, yep. Fair enough. I, and I think that that savagery is on display here, and that's what makes it fun is the pirates think he's right. And the second he's conscious and running, he just starts killing people. <laughs> no, No warning, no, like I said, no clever banter, no... Let's look at the situation. Let's just go and start killing. So if you like Conan and you like Garney and Dugan, I don't see why this wouldn't be to your liking. I just, like I said, grumpy old man, the kind of modern slick paper and everything, feels like this would have been great as like a big black and white magazine. (laughs) But kids don't buy black and white comics, right? The Walking Dead's been canceled. Isn't that true? And, yeah, uh, I, I hear the whole uh, country of Japan doesn't produce anything anymore either. And there's no so, kids there either, so... So, you know, it's all a bust. But anyways, those are just some quick recent... I'm still reading Uncanny X-Men and Oy. Unstoppable Wasp. And I'm trying... I'm back on the rub-a-dub-dub-zub train with the Avengers No Road Home. And all uh, that sort of stuff, but that can all wait till some other. I don't feel that's really appropriate for Marvel noise. I have an update. I read some Winter Soldier issues one and two. Oh, how's that Ooh, series? I read one. You did. <laughs> it was good, right? I liked it all right. I just felt there was nothing that made me think I need to get this on the regs. Like, I can just wait for it to be on Unlimited or in trade uh, or some other time. Nothing that made it feel like, I gotta get this now. Well, like I, I, I felt that... Titles. Yeah, I felt that way until I found out, like, issue what issue two was. And I'm like, oh, I want to I see that. 
like we get a lot of these programs with like Black Widow and you know all the spy stuff where people are always trying to create other people. Does that sound weird? That does sound weird. <laughs> and people like other people trying to clone well, other people. It's been a while, but if I remember, the setup was basically he's remind me of that Black Widow book. He's trying to kind of square some of the some of the problems of his past and help people and atone, wipe out the red in his ledger. Mm. Yeah, is that, is that correct, Kevin? Pretty much. Like He's trying to help people out that went through the, the same sort of problems. That, well, maybe not the exact same sort of problems, but he got a second chance, so he wants to give other people a second chance. And <laughs> Like, the guy dies in the first issue. Spoilers. Is that ever is that a, is that a big thing? I think you're kind of all expecting the guy to die, but the the way the way it goes down, I, I just it was just I thought it was funny, which sets up the thing I was really interested in, where uh, we have this new character, RJ, that's wearing Bucky's outfit. Oh boy, yeah, a Bucky from Counter Earth. <laughs> oh jeez. Yes, that Bucky. No, the the other guy. Um, what's his name? Bat- Battlestar is it? Oh, no, 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 no. This is the new guy, as far as I'm aware. Maybe not with issue three, because I think three's out. Maybe they they've flipped the script on me by issue three. But I guess I just like, you know, it's like Black Widow versus Black Widow. You know, Winter Soldier versus like another Winter Soldier type of scenario. But I think there's something else lurking in the background, so I'm like, this is cool. I'll check it out. And the art. Gotta love uh, the Rod Reese art. I think I brought it up last time. It was that uh, Cowl image series, and the the art impressed me a lot on that. In that, so it's another strong, strong art book. If you're if you're not as into the words, I guess. Oh, I'll have to yeah, check. I think I remember check it out. from Aquaman or. Justice League Ding. a few years back wasn't that it? I guess I, I ever since Brubaker's cap, I guess I'm more in in tune to pretty much read any Winter Soldier. Like I always think, oh, I don't need to come back to that, and then I'm like, I'm a fool. Of course, I want to read that. <laughs> <laughs> Just like remember, there was that four issue story. I think it was Jason Latour that. I did that one at the end of Brubaker's run there. That was also pretty neat. Is he still the man on the wall? No. <laughs> I had kind of forgotten about that. Oops, sorry. Because <laughs> I was trying to remember. I'm like, yeah, do people know? Like, I, like, I don't think everyone technically knows that he's still around right and i'm like oh yeah there was that whole man on the wall thing in between all right as promised we're gonna take a look and go way back to comics that hit the stands in the fall of 1962 through the winter of 1963. It's Strange Tales, issues 101 to 107. At least, 
the lead Human Torch feature, that is. I've been wanting to go back and look at these comics for a long time, so I'm glad you guys have finally taken the bait. Well, I'm not sure quite what's happening on the cover of 101. <laughs> oh, we'll get there. But first, I just want to say that these are 13-page stories. Strange Tales was a split book. And they are written by, plotted by Stan and then scripted by his brother Larry Lieber with pencils by Jack Kirby for the most part and inks turning into both pencils and inks by the end of these issues by the capable Dick Ayers. These issues have been reprinted many times in many ways. Uh, There's Marvel Masterworks, Strange Tales, hardcovers. There is a recent epic collection-like Human Torch and the Thing, Strange Tales, the complete collection trade paperback. These are all on the Marvel Unlimited digital service. And there's where I first read them off the racks. They were reprinted way back in the 1974 to 1975 eight-issue Human Torch series that were adorned with sharp new covers by the likes of John Romita, Ron Wilson, and Gil Kane. Guys, these were amongst the first comics that I ever bought and ever read. Nothing like those first comics. I think I've mentioned I had that Steve Ditko little tiny paperback collection of ASM like 6 through 12 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. That I carried around forever and then permanently imprinted that as my Spider-Man, even though obviously contemporaneously that was not the current creative team. These stories have just been around for me since I first was ever picking up a comic book. I've had some sort of relationship with these stories, which is fun, because it's these first uh, bunch, these first seven or so, the first eight, actually, that that Human Torch series reprinted. So these are the ones. And they started in the fall of 1962, and Fantastic Four number one was fall of 1961, so this is like a year later. And Strange Tales previously was still an anthology, horror, mystery, suspense type book. So this is the f- they're now consistently going to be dabbling into the world of the Marvel Universe and their superheroes. They replaced Foom. <laughs> and as you said, Kevin, the cover of 101 <laughs> has, the, has the torch flying around a melting parachute amusement park ride while the dastardly villain looks on. A what? I'm not sure I went to one of those. (laughs) I like how the cover has an asterisked editorial box saying that the torch is appearing here by permission of the Fantastic Four magazine. They still weren't all tied together as part of the Marvel Universe or even Marvel Comics Publishing because that was... Goodman's old strategy, right? Have a whole bunch of different different little like sham companies putting out each issue, so if one gets in trouble, it's not related to the other one, and he could pass the books around. I also love that they called them magazines back. <laughs> you bet. And the Destroyer, the villain on the cover, and the Torch each reference the men that need saving from falling off of this amusement park ride, and I was thinking, that's got to be providing some relief to not have to worry about saving the women and children first. Mm. They would never ride such a dangerous ride. (laughs) So how do you feel about them using the first three pages for reprints? 
<laughs> well, what are you going to do? The Torch is America's favorite superhero. It even says so on the first page, and he's got to be introduced to the readers of the Strange Tales magazine, who never even heard of this Fantastic Four book. <laughs> the Torch, I think, is funny. He's flying around uh, doing stunts and stuff, and he has to deal with his flame having a time constraint before it runs out. I'm not used to that in the yeah. more mature Torch. I also... It brought me back to that time. They always made a lot of deliberate constraints. Every hero had... Spider-Man was always running out of web fluid. That was yeah. his weakness. Everyone always had their thing that... Uh, Iron Man always was running out of battery. Plug in his armor or his heart would stop. My transistors! So they, they always put a weakness in that could be worked into the story. And the torch here is still portrayed as either having no facial features or like the ghostly shadowy representation of facial features which you know is a, more akin to what we're used to seeing from the original golden age human torch the burgos torch well johnny in his status quo here johnny storm is the human torch and he's living with his sister sue who's also in the fantastic four out on long island and although Sue is known to be the Fantastic Four's invisible girl, Johnny's identity remains a secret at his high school. And I think it's funny they have to make a little blurb that, well, they're so into the continuity of, of it all that, well, four of his buddies did know, because if you're reading Fantastic Four, some of his buddies there knew that he was the Human Torch when they were working on his jalopy and that stuff. But they graduated. See, it's explained away and you don't win a no prize. Yeah. <laughs> So all the students that are left at the high school don't know that Johnny's the Human Torch. Well, they also fixed that a couple issues in yeah, in a brilliant way, I thought. It was like, yeah, we're just going to drop this. I really thought that was fun. You know, another power I didn't know Johnny used a lot was making these duplicate flame people. Right? Yeah, like flame constructs. He does that a lot throughout this He's... run. He used to do that, and then Spider-Man would make those web dummy versions, too. They really <laughs> love the the fake doppelganger thing. And then Strange came along and <laughs> created multiple images of himself. You don't know which is the real him. On page two here, we get schematics of Johnny's carcinogen-laden lair. It's a, a detailed layout of his crime fighter's bedroom. Man, they need to bring these uh, split views back in the comics. It is. It's cool. I love a good map, right, Kevin? Oh, yeah. It's just funny seeing how everything is asbestos-lined. <laughs> I know you like Johnny's asbestos bed. Yeah. Oh. His asbestos pillow, because he can really breathe it in. He's just like, oh, I love rolling around in asbestos. But, you know, maybe with him as a human torch, he's cool. I don't know. It was about uh, 30, 25 years ago or so. My dad got so excited when he found some asbestos shingles at some second so he could put them in his house. <laughs> so, you know, some older people still appreciate asbestos, I want to say. There was asbestos tiles on the floor down here in the bunker before I took care of them. He has a fancy table. It says tabletop is TV screen with scans all colors. And I'm like, wow. That's pretty, pretty good. Yeah, for 1962. Yeah, absolutely. He must have set him up with that. 
Is this Tom Swift or Johnny Storm? I also think it's funny that they make a point of two more times over the next four panels explaining that he's maintaining a secret identity. It's like, okay, we get it. You see him, like, in a couple issues, he's just like, I gotta... I have the secret identity. Like, I don't want to be a celebrity and everything. And I'm like, no, Johnny, you'd enjoy being a celebrity. After a Fantastic Four origin recap, it's established that Johnny and his pals walk past a soon-to-be-opened amusement park on their ways home after school. We then cut to the editor of the town's newspaper receiving a threat letter from someone called The Destroyer. He wants the amusement park construction to stop. Not the V Battalion guy? Yeah. The editor, he crumples up and throws the letter away. I mean, it also looks like he might have blown his nose in it first, because it's, <laughs> it's, it's a pretty saturated-looking, crumpled-up letter there. It's a bit heavy-looking. With the warning ignored, the next day, the roller coaster is being tested by a professional tester, and... The car comes derailed, and the the guy's going to be killed. Destroyed, Steve. Right. Johnny and his pals are on scene, but Johnny's got to find a way to keep his identity a secret. So he controls the flame of a nearby cigarette lighter to produce a huge, opaque smoke screen. Little Does... known fact, Strange Shells 101 was Joe Casada's favorite comic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, does flame work that way? I don't know. Anyway. Guess what he was able to do was keep it going, smother it, and light it up, smother it, light it up, smother it, light it up, so it created this effect of sputtering out the smoke. Does cigarette lighter smoke? Well, if you, if you diminish the flame almost to next to nothing, the problem is it has such a clean fuel source. But I assume if he can control flame, he can tamp down, although you'd think his best use would have been as a firefighter to put out all the forest fires and everything. Anyway, the torch flies up and he saves the guy, and by the time the smoke clears, Johnny is instantly right back where he's supposed to be. When the news editor receives another threat letter, now referencing the accident from the day before, he brings it over to the park owner, who he doesn't see the connection, you guys. <laughs> Destroyer mentions the accident yesterday? Nah, I don't see the connection. Hey, look, those guys get all kinds of threats every day. It was before it's the social media of the day. So You know what it's like to be a carny? <laughs> no respect. The other thing I appreciate that the art team does in all these issues is... And he deflames his hands whenever he interacts with people. I'm like, what a nice little touch. Like a, a lazier artist might have just left all that in, but they make deliberate showing that when he grabs someone or whatever, he stops the flame on that part of his body. A few days later, Johnny and his pals witness the parachute ride being tested. But the tower is totally coming apart at the seams. It's been sabotaged. This time, Johnny distracts the crowd with flame balls, then heads into the funhouse, fortunately doesn't get lost in the House of Mirrors, comes flying out as the torch, and he welds the tower back together. Again, to contrast, Spider-Man used to sometimes launch web balls, <laughs> so it's all the... <laughs> We're seeing a lot of 
different power, same utilization of said power. Well, that's what they're going for here, right? I mean, Spider-Man was groundbreaking because the sidekick-like character was the superhero, right? And Johnny is the young teen sidekick-like character in the Fantastic Four, and they're making him be the hero here. So you're getting those same interaction with his high school buddies, and uh, they they really are trying to Spider-Man him in a lot of ways here. The one thing I don't miss from the old comics, though, are the act breaks that they used to split the stories up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Although those were fun sometimes in those old Justice League, ding! comics when they would split everybody up into, you know, the best way to have a big team book back in the old DC days was to split everybody up to like groups of two or three people and have them have their own little chapter side adventure. That was always fun. And they needed their own story break so they could have their character logos and stuff. Johnny also just figures out a way to distract the gathered crowd a third way, this time creating a fire formation of himself that fools the crowd to look right while Johnny reappears on the scene from the left. I love the, the torch, he's falling apart. <laughs> the, <laughs> no! Fades away. The next day, Johnny sees a headline in the paper. The Destroyer challenges the Human Torch to battle. Place your bets, true believers. He wants Johnny to meet him alone, at a cabin, on the outskirts of town, and bring a sandwich. I, I might have made up that last part. But the rest of the FF get explained away by Sue being out of town and Johnny telling Ben that it's his fight. So scram. Wow, Johnny has a suit and a hat and everything. I love when they go to school and all the kids are wearing ties. (laughs) And I wore an onion on my belt, as was the style at the time. (laughs) That was the time. Although I have to say the Destroyer's outfit is... The most uninspired. <laughs> the green sack with a gas. <laughs> hey, I'm not really a supervillain. It made me feel like this is not a character they're going to be revisiting thousands and thousands of times. Johnny shows up at, at the cabin, as promised, fully aflame, and walks into a trap. Oh no, it's liquid foam. Johnny's flame is out and he is a sitting duck until the destroyer is scared away by some teens who followed the torch. Oh, those teenagers. Basically, we're going to get a lesson on every type of counter-flame mechanism over the next 20, 30 issues. The torch realizes, as he ponders the scenario at hand, that the Destroyer has only targeted the tallest rides in the amusement park, not the short ones like the Ferris wheel, which I was scratching my head. Isn't the Ferris wheel a tall ride? But whatever. So the torch flies up and looks around, see what he can see from up high, and he spies over in a nearby harbor a commie sub. Wow. Uh, I should clarify, you mean submarine, not the sandwich, right, Steve? Right, and not the submariner either. (laughs) They see the torch, see them, and submerge to escape. So the torch flies over the water, over where it is, and he heats the seawater until it boils. Gets so hot that they have to surface, and they get arrested topside. And 
uh, I mean, geez, the torch should be arrested too. I'm thinking, how how's that ecosystem recovering from the boiling seawater? Also, very disappointed. Submerge. The guy should be yelling, "Dive, dive, dive!" That's that's like the classic sub line. The and other thing could, I I think was funny you was sunk my battleship. <laughs> was that after he boils them, the navy shows up and says our intelligence is right. So basically, they didn't need the torch at all. They no, they were seconds that. away from cracking the case. Inside the sub, the torch corners and unmasks the destroyer. It's the publisher of the town's newspaper. And he would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for those kids at the cabin. Boy, this is very Scooby-Doo, <laughs> complete with the unmasking and the simple plot twist. But hey, they... There was a story to be had and a mystery solved. Yay! Issue 102 has a three-panel cover depicting this issue's features, including the first appearance of the wizard in profile, as only Kirby can depict him. I mean, how great is the shape of that guy's skull? He might be the ugliest character in the Marvel U. Like, only Kirby's Loki, you know, even comes close. But I want to know what the dreaded secret of the hidden planet is. <laughs> I wonder if those are on the Marvel Unlimited, or if it's just the Torch stuff. A splash page teaser this issue shows the Torch robbing a bank. What? Bursting through the bank vault wall with fireballs, Kevin. First, though, we get treated to a recap of last issue as the gargoyle-faced wizard watches the torch's exploits in a like a movie theater on the on the newsreels. My favorite has to be when uh, explaining the wizard's all his like he's a genius can do anything. The chess playing robot has mechanical arms. <laughs> <laughs> Checkmate. So he has one of those those chair beds like Kang has too. Oh, yeah, and a purple and green scheme at this time at least. Yeah. The wizard decides that he's going to match his brain against this this torch who's been so successful in making a name for himself. The next two pages establish the wizard's status quo, including the use of purple in his wardrobe, even though it doesn't last, and show his ultra-modern home with the air chair that Kevin mentions and other furnishings that are years ahead of its time, like the Kirby artwork on the wall. Kirby was years ahead of his time. Also, the wizard keeps a scrapbook of his exploits, like beating the chess-playing robot ten times in a row, Andrew. Well, that robot, it just... Why would you put robot arms, but they look like human arms? It's just a great... Not how you expect a chess-playing robot to look. He also performs unrivaled escape acts that would make Houdini scratch his head. The only challenge left, guys, the wizard's genius mind determines, the only challenge left for him in this world is to defeat the Human Torch. Do you think these were the seeds of the Fourth World and Mr. Miracle, Steve? (laughs) The wizard's scheme is to promote a stunt to dig the world's largest hole with an atomic-powered drill vehicle, then allow a disaster to occur, and the Torch will have to save him. And save him he does. 
In, in appreciation, the wizard offers the torch a tour of his home and his to see his inventions and stuff, and the torch eagerly accepts. I'm thinking as if he hasn't seen enough at the Baxter building, you know? Yeah, but maybe he, he'll get a look at that big robot. <laughs> I like how here he's sporting his short-sleeve flame look to keep his arms, you know, clear to protect the handrails and stuff at the wizard's house. Yeah, what kind of guests would you be, Steve, if you set fire to his escalator handrails? They well, work well, so smoothly, he can't even feel him moving. What about his feet? Is he not setting fire to things? That's with his what feet? I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. Well, he you can't see the bottom of his feet don't have the flame. So. Plus the wizard's uh, okay. The wizard's place is risky, all though. granite floors. Don't worry about it. And asbestos. <laughs> Coated with asbestos. <laughs> well, the wizard soon quite easily dupes the torch into standing in front of three obvious cannons. They're going to take a 3D picture of you. Okay, I better smile. But nope, they're just shooting a chemical spray that douses Johnny's flame. Except for his head. Again, we're seeing the, oh, we're right. seeing the seeds of Dormammu and Cosmic Ghost Rider. He smartly kept his mouth closed. The wizard locks Johnny in an asbestos-lined cell and then masquerades as the torch using a special suit and a device. And we even get a little schematic of how it works. Oh, they used to put those in all the comics. Good thing your inside of your suit is lined with asbestos, too. The wizard, as the torch, robs a bank, then facilitates a major jailbreak, then sets up his own toll booth firewall stop on a bridge, charging a hundred bucks a car, and then finally, just, like, to make matters worse, he writes, down with law and order, across the sky in flames. Wow. After he, melt, after he melts an important civic statue, Steve. <laughs> the wizard's chemical solution finally wears off, and Johnny burns so hot that he burns right through the asbestos-lined cell. He finds police and is surprised that he's getting shot at. His reputation <laughs> has been shot. He finds the wizard, who invites him over to his house again, and the torch accepts again. <laughs> Dude, all you have to do is challenge the torch. I don't know why Dr. Doom never did that. He could have defeated him easily. The wizard holds photographic proof of his impersonation of the torch and his dastardly deeds, and dares the torch to either kill him, which he knows he won't, flame down and reveal his identity to him and the world, or accept his ruined reputation. Johnny instead shows the wizard that he is in fact all-powerful and telekinetic and wills the pictures from the wizard's hand over to his. The wizard's been beaten. But how, how did he do it? The thing I couldn't figure out is, from my reading these old comics, they would frequently actually give the hero <laughs> random power. <laughs> Remember when Magneto like projected himself into the ocean to... <laughs> and Thor's hammer could sense danger <laughs> through the earth. <laughs> but how was Johnny able to levitate these pictures out of the wizard's hand? What was his ace in the hole? Did he have help? He had help. He's got a sister, you know. Yep, the invisible girl came, snuck in, was all invisible, and plucked them out of the wizard's hand. Wah, wah. Outsmarted, 
by a teen. In issue 103, on the cover, the torch is half-extinguish. He's chained in a water trap. He's a prisoner of the fifth dimension. Whoa. In this issue, a developer is building houses near a swamp on Long Island. That's near Johnny's school. But the developer's houses keep sinking, despite them like reinforcing the ground beforehand each time. Johnny overhears some chatter at school about this. I mean, this is the type of stuff that high school chums talk about at the locker, you know? So he asks Reed, who pretty much tells him he's busy and, and to go investigate it himself if he's so interested. And like the old local crazy guy in the first Friday the 13th, there's a haggard old swamp fisherman type who's always hanging around, like warning the builder about the swamp demons getting even and all this stuff. So Johnny stakes out after the next house starts getting built. And he spies the old man with two blue-green skin beings shoot a ray that melts the ground under the house and sinks it. The torch reveals himself, but the old man does him one better and unmasks as one of... one of them. Dun-dun-dun. Then he shoots the torch with one of those pesky flame-dousing chemicals and takes him at gunpoint through a portal to his world. The fifth dimension. Mention, mention, mention. Is this where you play Age of Aquarius, Steve? (laughs) Is this seeming like Rocket Robin Hood or or like the 60s Spider-Man episode? Like Majorly. Dementia 5 and all that? Well, you also have in the Marvel Universe, every swamp is a portal to different dimensions. (laughs) Well, yeah, there's that too. How many of these old, the horror comics from Marvel, if you ever saw like a weird old man. It was almost always an alien in disguise. Yeah, Kirby drew him especially. Like every single one of these is like, and then he takes his human mask off and reveals he's one of them. But they're pretty drab-looking aliens. They look like they could be Atlanteans or Kree or just some generic well, different-colored humanoids. Actually, there's some speculation just by fan scholars that the Fifth Dimension is a dimension where the Kree ruled the world rather than just putting the Inhumans on them and taking off. And that's why they're like a blue-green skin, that they're a mix of kind of what's left of the human race and, and the Kree. And I'll mention more about that at the end because of this issue because there's a connection to the next appearance of the warlord who is in charge of the fifth dimension here. His name is Zimu. He's an imperialistic conqueror who rules his dimension and has his sights on conquering ours via this swamp portal to Long Island. First Long Island, then the world. Zimu. And he admits that they were sinking the houses because we were getting too close. And someone might see the Kami sub. I I mean the interdimensional portal. Kami's alien, Steve. What's the difference? I like that that scene was so powerful and stepping into the other world and everything that you guys both thought of other media, like with, with sound, like Andrew thought of music and, and Kevin thought of a psychedelic Spider-Man cartoons, music and stuff. That's pretty cool. Well, I think this fifth dimension was right about the time this comic was coming out. So maybe they were inspired by this comic, Steve. 
The torch is held chained in a cell of liquid chemical, flame dousing, of course, and they give him an oxygen mask and all that, but they leave his shoes and socks on. Yeah. Soon, Valeria the Beautiful, daughter of Phineas, arrives on scene and uses her hypno ring to take out the guard. So this was the first Marvel Comics Fabulous Freak Brothers crossover, <laughs> Or Phineas and Ferb. <laughs> the Torch is freed by her and Phineas, him being the leader of the underground opposition to Zemu's rule. Zemu's the one who wants to invade Earth. They want no part of it, and they want the Torch to help take down Zemu. The Torch agrees and starts about his task by, like, pretty much sabotaging Zemu's arsenal. And then broadcasts a message to the people in flame letters to arise against the tyranny. Defeat Zemu. Zemu retaliates by using a big magnet to hold Phineas and company, but Torch uses his smokescreen power, then melts the magnet and rescues them and stuff. He forms a swirling column of heat and creates a super tornado to take out Zemu's tank army and leads the people to revolt, like you said, with this message across the sky. And the people shake their hands. We're revolting! We're revolting! They certainly are, Steve. They certainly are. The Torch himself gets to capture a fleeing Zemu in a cage of flames. Phineas takes charge of the Fifth Dimension, Johnny gets a hug, and the invasion of the Earth is called off. And I like how Zemu just folds his arm and pouts after again. (laughs) No speeches, like nothing, just has that pouty look like, oh, you you dastardly kids, I would have gotten away with it too. What lends credence to the retcon fan scholar type idea of Zemu and company in the fifth dimension being Cree is that Zemu would return years later as Zemu with an X instead of a Z in Fantastic Four 158. He escaped and again rose to power. This time he can't comes to Earth and overpowers the Inhumans, the royal family on Adelin. He wants to force Black Bolt to activate his Thunder Horn. And that's at the time when Medusa was filling in being a part of the Fantastic Four. So Medusa is called back home, brings the FF with her, and they take care of business. In issue 104, this is the one. The Human Torch battles the most fantastic foe of all. Pastepot Pete and his unbelievable super weapon. First appearance of Pastepot Pete, but I don't need to tell anyone that. We talk about key issues a lot, but it's gotta be Strange Tales 104, first appearance of Pastepot Pete. This cover's the best. The, The cover blurb that I just read says it all. The torch is dodging Pete's paste shots. If it hits me, I'm a goner. <laughs> and, <laughs> or at least he's stuck to the wall. And Pete's bucket is shown here open and just dripping with goo. It's awesome. No, wait. Wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. The cover's not the best. The splash page is the best. <laughs> the, the torch and paste pot Pete, mano a mano, with no background at all. And paste pots dripping paste pot is covered but it's still dripping with product and Pete's face is drawn as only Kirby can portray him with the big wide brow and the underbite I love it Yeah, he does not look like a nice guy if you were thinking 
Oh, I'm going to invite Pete over to hang out. <laughs> How do you come up with that, by the way? Like, are you sitting at your art desk and you see, like, you have an open thing of paste and you're like, man, that would make a great weapon. <laughs> this tale opens with Johnny at the bank. Again, professing his efforts to keep his secret identity from being discovered. Oh, whoops, I almost wrote the human torch on my bank deposit slip. I have to be more careful in the future. But then, a flamboyant guy in what appears to be a... a French clown suit, (laughs) armed with a gun attached by a hose to a dripping bucket of, of goo that he holds in his other hand so he doesn't even have a free hand enters and proceeds to hold up the bank. Hey, get a load of the refugee from a masquerade ball. wonder what he's advertising. They're not very nice. While this is definitely still a family podcast, some of these panels and images are maybe not all ages. He sticks a teller to the wall. He sticks a guard's hand to his holster. What can we do but to comply? With this guy's demands. He's unstoppable. Johnny can't risk exposing his alter ego, of course. It's the best kept secret in town. So he creates one of these dummy torch constructs out of flame. And you guys, he somehow wills it to follow Pete. Even out of sight. Even with Pete on motorcycle. The real torch then intends to follow the heat trail. But... I'm thinking by the way that bucket is spewing overflow as Pete rides, can't he just, isn't it like a trail of breadcrumbs on its own? And how does it stop from sticking? <laughs> like, like, wouldn't it harden if it's exposed to air? I don't, maybe there's an agent that the gun adds to it, but I like when they decide they're going to nab that sticky corn ball and the crowd goes after him and Pete cements their feet to the ground. And he goes, naturally, paste is the supreme weapon. Yep. Yes, it is, Pete. A yes, little, it is. A little UV light to harden it. Paste Pot Pete ditches the bike for a big, like, moving, like, semi-trailer truck. And he heads over to a military missile base. He's He's got a busy day planned for himself here. And he pastes his way into the military base, guys. Hey, and he covers their mouth with paste, a la Spider-Man again. It's going to be the boldest crime when he steals this missile, Steve. It's a man-sized missile, but it's the most powerful rocket ever invented. So does it dissolve in like in an hour, or what's the deal with the with That the seems pace? to be what he indicates, because he says the next hour or so. So I guess, or maybe it weakens enough. And how he's going to steal the missile is inside this truck, Paste Pot Pete has concealed a giant Paste Cannon which he uses to snatch the experimental missile right out of the air, right after it's been launched with a big, like, line of paste. Wow. That's some strong paste. It must have its most power, I would think, at that, the beginning. Exactly. To get that lift off. So that's an impressive work by Pete. A few pasted-up soldiers later, and this super criminal is out of there. But by now, the torch has caught up along the heat path. He throws flaming spears at the truck, but Paste Pot Pete is an even more super semi-driver and skillfully avoids them all. 
He has lightning fast reflexes. <laughs> and that the, the truck really handles well. <laughs> the torch also defies nature and burns a ditch into the ground. But Pete just grabs some boards with his paste gun from the other side of the ravine and fashions a bridge to drive across. By now, the torch has reached his time limit. Wah, wah, and turns back into Don Blake. I mean, no, his his <laughs> flames go out, and he falls helplessly from the sky. But in the shot of the day, Pete is so smooth that he pastes Johnny mid-air and attaches him to another missile, just as it's blasting off. <laughs> oh, I hope it doesn't explode over the ocean. In the 60s, we like to launch a lot of missiles. That was like a big thing. He could either ride it till it crashes in the ocean and explodes, or ignite as the torch and free himself, but that will set the missile off and he'll just explode in the air. So his only other option is to ignite one little finger and use it like a little blowtorch to very carefully cut himself free, which he manages to do just in the nick of time. He goes back after Paste Pot Pete, and this time he's not fooling around. He hurls a deadly barrage of fireballs at the truck and just melts it to slag. Then he heats Paste Pot's Pete's namesake Paste Pot until it becomes too hot to handle. All and, in all, a great page that this happens on, by the way. Oh, it's so good. Looks great, and the fireballs and everything. Finally, he traps Pete in a circle of flame. But just with the pace that's left in the gun, that he has one shot left, Pete amazingly hitches a ride out on a passing passenger jet plane. (laughs) There's a man on the wing of this plane! (laughs) And now the torches flame, it's too weak for him to follow. So Pete gets a ride over like the Long Island Sound, drops off to where he had a boat waiting, he commissioned a boat to be waiting for him there to take him away. This guy is, he's got it all figured out. Super criminal. And he got away from the human torch. Yeah. So he's hes doing better than most of these mugs. I mean, he didn't get away with the missile or the money or anything, but he escaped. The money might still be near where he, he might have stashed it when he switched to the truck. Yeah, sadly, he stashed it in the truck. Oh, he didn't. He he couldn't have expected the Human Torch to be on the scene so quickly. Is the problem? He didn't know that the Human Torch's flame doppelganger would follow him miles and miles and miles away. <laughs> I turn right, it turns right. I turn left, it turns left. How is he doing it? <laughs> the Torch would be able to follow that heat signature right to him. On the cover of Strange Tales issue one hundred and five, the wizard is mentioned four times. In every cover blurb and every word balloon. (laughs) He's back. The wizard's been doing time in prison. And he has managed some privileges for his good behavior. And he's allowed to work in the medical facility. Where, of course, he steals components to mix a powerful chemical corrosive. And burns a hole out of his cell wall. When the guards come to check on him and realize he... There's a hole in the wall. They all run out of the hole in the wall to follow him. And he actually was still hiding in the cell and then just walks out the front door. They loved all these. I'm pretty sure, like, the vultures broken out, Sandman, all that. 
back in the 60s, Marvel prisons were just revolving doors of prisoners acting good for two months to get privileges and then abusing those privileges to escape. They always made uh, it a point of showing how the villain got out from the last time when he got captured or something was done to him or Magneto got reduced to a, a baby's brain and how did he get... You know what I mean? The next time you see him, they always made it a case that how did he get out of it last time? I like that. I do too, although... So far, Sue Storm hasn't come out on great in a lot of these stories as being particularly useful, smart. No. She pulled the pictures out of the wizard's hand the first time. Anyway, the police find the wizard at his home, but it is surrounded by an invisible barrier that they cannot penetrate. The wizard then issues a challenge to the human torch who is all ready to go, but Sue scolds him that members of the FF don't go off and fight to satisfy their own pride and to let the police handle it. So Johnny, he creates one of his flame doubles to just stand there in his place and goes off to satisfy his own pride. Wait, he can control it when he's not there to just stand there? It just stands there and Sue's all talking to it. Johnny, Johnny, why haven't you been... You're not listening to me. I don't... You answer me right now. I feel bad. They don't they don't do a lot with Sue these old comics very much. She calls Reed right away and he's like, So? And and the thing is eating cake and having a cup of hot chocolate, so he's he's busy. Hey, sometimes Some key lime pie is going on there. Sometimes a man has to stand on his own two feet, Steve. Even if he's a sixteen year old boy. The torch arrives on scene and is allowed through the barrier by the wizard. The first thing the wizard does is he shoots a large ballistic shell at him. Well, if you learn anything from Johnny, he's just going to stand in front of some rocket launcher or some ray gun and be like, what's going on? Just the heat of his own aura is like a protective shield, so the shell melts as it gets close. Then... The wizard opens a trap door under the torch that leads to an asbestos-lined dungeon. Prison must have dumbed the wizard down, right? Because the torch, lighter than air, he can fly, so he doesn't even fall through the trap door. I thought some of this, though, was secretly the wizard was trying to get the torch to use up his power, because there is a time limit. So that way, if he he throws enough traps, eventually he'll run out of juice. He doesn't know that. Maybe he's just testing him. To see the full extent of his abilities. Just then, the wizard has the nerve to fill the chamber with nerve gas. But the torch just makes a protective dome of flame to protect himself. The wizard also gets alerted to another intruder in his house. And he figures out correctly that it must be the invisible girl. So he finds her, marks her with a spray, and cages her. And now he's got the upper hand on the torch. There's also a bomb attached to the cell that she's in. And Johnny eventually is put in the cell with his sister. And I thought it was funny because she calls him by name as soon as he's tossed inside. Johnny! So much for the whole secret identity thing, right? Determining the torch's identity was one of the wizard's possible wins. In their last encounter, he was going to force the torch to to power down and he would see who he was and all that stuff but now he's powered down 
she's calling him Johnny, and it completely goes unmentioned. Well, he wanted Johnny to do it himself because it was a power move, Steve. He could figure out who the human torch is through his genius, but he wanted to have that move where he makes the torch give up his identity. That's the power move. You haven't earned one no prize tonight, Andrew. No, no, and no. Yeah, I've earned like six. If the temperature also in their cell that they're trapped in with the bomb rises by one degree, a little hammer arm strikes a bell like an old school bell, and the bomb goes off. Sue can't reach it, even with a boost, and apparently doesn't have her force field powers yet. Oh, jeez. Remember when those came in. So... Johnny tosses a little flame ball that burns the arm of the hammer before it manages to complete its strike. Then he becomes like the Golden Age Green Lantern and makes a fire construct working ballistic mortar and fires the bomb upward where it explodes harmlessly in the air. Wow. He sets off the fire alarm, which sets off the sprinkler system, creating a wet floor for the wizard to slip on. And then the cherry of the Sunday move is when the torch makes a fire construct saw to saw a hole in the ceiling so the sheetrock falls and clonks the wizard right on the head. Bonk. I'm thinking some of them, uh, some of his work as an escape artist might be undermined by how he got defeated in this story. Sue and Johnny disengage the force field and turn the wizard over to the authorities. And then the issue ends with an Archie-like gag about how the Torch can do without the help of his sister. The wizard would be back, though, of course. Not in these few issues. It's always interesting how many of these now classic villains... I mean, he really is a... a, Think of him as a Fantastic Four villain, but he's a Human Torch villain. Kind of like the Beetle. He, He ends up being like a big Reed Richards vengeance rival type grudge match thing when it really was the torch to begin with issue 106 of strange tales on this cover the torch is cradling his injured left arm it has no flame on it that's how you can tell it's injured while some dude is bouncing around him with like the frequency of a cheap ham radio boing 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 like ricochet rabbit there it looks like it's Cato from the green hornets <laughs> it really really does I thought it's like who's chauffeur the Fantastic Four is also on the cover. They are looking on and want to help, but Reed, as always it seems, is like, no, let the boy do it himself. This issue and the next, the art chores are all by Dick Ayers. And honestly, you don't really miss a beat. No, I think he's... I wonder if some of those, by this time, they were probably pretty light breakdowns yeah. Kirby was doing before anyway. Yeah, so. and Dick's doing his Kirby thing, too. You know, that's the house style of the any Fantastic Four book. The Torch at the beginning of this issue is training through an obstacle course that was designed by Reed to help keep his combat skills sharp. And I think it's funny, he makes a topical reference to being like the Century Limited coming through, which was a, a, train, a high-speed train rail that ran, or at least what they called high speed back then, that ran from New York City to Chicago Express until 1967. After a quick change back into his civvies, and some more shtick about how if his civilian identity were known, he'd never have a moment's privacy and all that. Meanwhile, like the bag that he puts his Fantastic Four costume in has a Fantastic Four 4 
right on it. Well, they introduce Carl Zanti as the main foe, but you don't know how he's introduced, except we know that he's a bad guy. You want to know how we know, Steve? He smokes a cigarette with a cigarette holder. That's yep. always a Marvel villain giveaway. I thought he was wearing purple, that's why. <laughs> Johnny arrives home and is greeted by his sister and Carl Zante, who is dressed like a French artist in here and claims he is the world's greatest acrobat. So he's not the tumbler. His spiel is basically that Johnny gets no respect in the FF and no money. And, like, he's the most important member. So he should go to Reed, ask him for a salary, and do respect. And if he doesn't get it, he should join Carl to form a new, invincible pair of crime fighters. The Torrid Twosome. I think Torrid has a different meaning than this guy (laughs) thinks it does. So off to the Fantastic Four's headquarters, Johnny goes. And, of course, Reed is all, you know, the reward money that we get goes to scientific research... And none of us want to stand out. We all take credit equally. That coming from the guy whose name is Mr. Fantastic, correct? But the torch, this is just what he was set up to not want to hear. So he is so done with this team. He calls Carl and says that he's in. From now on, Mr. Zante, I'm with you. I think it makes sense that he should... You're right, I never thought about it's the Fantastic Four. It could have been... The Grim Gang or something like that, if they wanted alliteration and named after one of the other members. The comedian Norm MacDonald on his comedy album has an opening skit. It's about the Fantastic Four at their formation. And Norm MacDonald, his voice is the voice of Reed Richards. Okay, I was up all last night, and I think I've come up with a great name for the group. Since we all have such fantastic powers... I think we should be called the Fantastic Four. Ooh, Fantastic Four. All right. That sounds good. I like that. Yeah, and I have come up with uh, individual names as well, if I may. Ben Grimm, Mm -hmm. you are a rock-like thing of a man. You will be called The Thing. Great. Sue Storm, you're a woman who has the power to make herself invisible. The Invisible Woman is your name from now on. Good. Johnny Storm, Mm -hmm. you are human, and yet you are a torch. Yeah. The Human Torch. The Human Torch. Okay. And I, Reed Richards, can stretch my body like a rubber band. I will be Mr. Fantastic. Okay, let's get on to business. First order of business for the Fantastic Four. Uh, Dr. Doom has the entire world's plutonium supply. Excuse me for a second. Yes, Ben. Um, uh, Never mind. Never mind. What is it, Ben? It's It's nothing. Nothing. Ben, we have to speak openly here. Well, it's just about the names. Uh-huh. Do you like yours, The Thing? No, I'm I'm fine with that. It just <laughs> seems a little... Well, I'm kind of a thing of a man. You're calling me The Thing. Uh-huh. Sue is a woman who can become invisible. She's the invisible woman. Makes sense. Johnny is human, yet a torch. So he's the human torch, right? Sure. And you can stretch your arms like a rubber band. Uh-huh. And you've named yourself Mr. Fantastic. Yes, Mr. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Just Uh-oh. seems a little, a little odd, you know. Yeah. I don't understand the problem. <laughs> I mean, we're all named after our powers. Right. 
But your power is to stretch like a rubber band. Right? That's why I come up with the idea, Mr. Fantastic. It's a fantastic ability I have. Right. No no one's saying it's not fantastic. I mean, many people, when they see me stretch, they often use that word, fantastic. I think what Ben's trying to say, Ben, right, is that um, we all have fantastic powers, but we're called what we do. Right. Yours is stretching. Maybe Mr... Stretch guy. Stre- oh, I was thinking well, stretch. But the, that's my name. Right, El okay. Stretcho. El Stretcho. No, 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 not El Stretcho. No, it's Mr. Fantastic is my name, okay? Now, if you guys have problems with your names, we can talk about it. My name is Mr. Fantastic. Let's talk about Dr. Doom. It's okay? just not fair. It's not, what? <sighs> you, okay. Ben, could, right? Could you Fantastic explain? is a, an adjective that describes what I do. Well, why aren't we adjectives? You are. You're the Fantastic Four. You like that name, don't you? But individually. Yeah. Do you like that name? Yes. Don't okay. We ben, like could that you so you like it when you're the Fantastic Four, but you don't like that I'm called Mr. Fantastic. No. Now, read. Just, just, just hear me out. We're the Fantastic Four, right? You're Mister Fantastic, right? The Fantastic Four comprises the Thing, the Invisible Girl, the Human Torch, and Mister Fantastic, right? Doesn't that seem a little odd to you? What is odd about that? Just because my name is Mister Fantastic and the group's called the Fantastic Four—that's your problem. Because well, in a nutshell, yes. Yeah, I think that's... it's a coincidence. A coincidence you created. There's only so many names. Look. The, the, the group's been named, okay? Why can't you be called like we are what you do, what your power is? Okay, I think we're saying the same thing. I think we're saying the same thing. Okay, what are we saying? We're saying that we're fine with being, being called Mr. Fantastic. I mean, in different words, right? No, no. Read. Look. What we're saying is you should be called Mr. Stretchy Arm. Listen. I the name oh, come the, on. the you point don't... is the group has been named okay and that's that's it it's in All the news right. it's in today's newspaper as a matter of fact <laughs> what do you mean it's in the newspaper take a look the Fantastic Four headed by Mister Fantastic will fight Doctor Doom today at three there you go byline by Reed Richards A.K.A. Mister Fantastic what? different guy that's a different guy. Uh, I don't know who that is and I don't know how the press get their sources whatever. Look, you don't want me to be called Mr. Fantastic, okay? I won't be called Mr. Fantastic, okay? You can call me Mr. Assface. Come That's on, gonna, no, don't. No, I'm changing my name. I'm tra- I'll phone the editor of the, uh, uh, you know, the Times tomorrow, and I'll say, hey, I'm changing it to Mr. Assface. Uh, you know, reprint all the newspapers, okay? No, we don't want this. Don't. Come on, Reed. It'll be Mr. Assface and the Fantastic Three. If it's that and important the press will you... have a field day with that. Oh, all right, Reed. if it's that important, you, you're Mr. Fantastic. Just be him. Who cares? Okay. Yeah. But so you, I'm Mr. Fantastic. Yes. Yes, you're All Mr. Right. Fantastic. I'm Mr. Fantastic. Good. Good. What should we do now, Mr. Fantastic? You don't say it like that. You do not say it like that. All right, Mr. Fantastic. <laughs> I see what you're doing. Okay. Okay. So after saying that he is joining up with Carl, Johnny sews up a new gaudy costume from Unstable Molecule Fabrics. Which I didn't know that Reed made them in other colors than Fantastic Four Blue. I also love how everyone can just sew up a costume. Man, those home ec classes really paid off in the 60s. People used to be able to sew. Sue warns Johnny to avert from this course of action, but 
Johnny is all in and he is not hearing it. He he's, he's learned enough about listening to Sue, right? Unfortunately, uh, Dick Ayers gives her a fantastic forehead, though. <laughs> <laughs> the next day, Carl shows up with news of their first case. It's the old bank teller stuck in the vault and running out of air scenario. So the torch rushes off ahead to begin this new phase of his crime-fighting career. He reaches the bank, burns through the locked vault steel door, but there's no one inside, guys. Hey, hey, Carl? Carl? Carl does. He shows up, but he's got a hose full of... You've got it. Flame-dousing liquid. Liquid Whoa. asbestos. <laughs> I didn't even know it came in liquid. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be tough to get out of, like, the nooks and crannies, right? He extinguishes the torch's flame, and then he shoots him. Whoa. And Kevin, he would have shot him some more, but the gun jammed. Oh, See, man. That's where they should have done a what if. Because it's pretty unlikely for his gun to jam. So what if Carl Zanti's gun never jams? Yeah. Then he kills the torch. Like, that would have been a... They did a lot of Fantastic Four what-ifs. That could have been Marvel's The Nail. Ding! Another DC reference. Well, I just... You know, they had... The first one was about Spider-Man joining the FF. They had Sue marrying Namor. They just didn't seem to do a lot featuring the Torch. Yeah. So, And I thought this would be a great... Like, what if Carl Zanti, the world-famous acrobat of the Torrid Twosomes, gun doesn't jam? Like, do they stay together? Do they add Spider-Man? How does it work out? Carl escapes to his getaway vehicle, but it's going nowhere fast. The thing is there, and he's holding the back end up. Curse you, rear-wheel drive. The Fantastic Four are on the scene, and they apprehend Carl. And poor Johnny, he's he's got his arm shot. He comes out, and I don't know how it happens, but he kind of allows Carl to flee so that he can have the pleasure of hunting him down like the dog that he is. Carl makes for the rooftop and Johnny flies up after him, but almost as if he relies on flapping his arms to gain altitude or something, he can't seem to fly straight with his arm shot. I think it's uh, the heat distribution is uneven. That's where the problem comes from. From one little bullet hole? Well, what he should have done was to deflame both arms, because we've seen him fly with his hands open, and then he would have been able to compensate better. Johnny at least is able to make it to the ladder Carl is climbing and heat it up so that Carl drops right down to the telephone wires, which he then springs off of and lands by a manhole. He's going to escape down into the sewers. He'd rabbit there, too, but... The torch melts the asphalt under his feet and traps him, just like Pace Pot Pete would. Pace is the ultimate weapon, Steve. (laughs) Johnny's all aw shucks, but the team welcomes him back with open arms, and then Johnny has his very own Spider-Man No More panel (laughs) as he he trashes his torrid to some duds, and then everyone's square again. I was gonna I think ask we you know if that's what, the uh, same trash can, and it just yeah. keeps on accumulating like costumes and clothing, and then some guys around. Huh? More clothes. <laughs> I think we know what comics Romita was reading back in the day. <laughs> this was the inspiration. Ripping off Dick Ayers. 
Strange Tales 107 is the final issue we're covering this time around. And it's a doozy, drawn by Dick Ayers, as we have said. It is, and I quote, The epic battle which you've demanded. The Human Torch versus the Mighty Submariner facing each other in a breathtaking saga of fire against water. This is the big one. Yeah, I would say so. Because we had the the Golden Age battle, but you haven't seen the Silver Age battle. <laughs> Still dealing with his inferiority issues, Johnny decides that the best way for Reed and the others to consider him an equal would be for him to hand the Submariner a decisive defeat. Right? I mean, it makes perfect sense. I'm just going to go pick a fight with some guy. Yeah, he takes off with that goal in mind. He doesn't tell Sue, because she'd only worry like a mother hen, Andrew. Well, it says, oh well, boys will be boys. This plan is so well thought out that the torch runs out of flame before he even reaches the region of open space that Namor's known to inhabit. Good thing there's like a merchant vessel nearby that he climbs up onto the ship, but he is mistaken for a stowaway and is made to swab the deck. Later, there's danger of a dense fog, and it gets averted when the torch, now having his flame back, lights the vessel's passage through, proving his identity to the seaman. He flies off and leaves Namor a flaming challenge written across the sky, but so low that it heats the water and singes flying fish passing through. Oh, he's destroying the... No wonder. That Namor cannot tolerate. Well, no what about the other orders. thing he did with the submarine? Namor is just like, ah, humanity. Yeah, what, what they're they, doing again. Yeah, what they do to their shores is one thing, but this is out with the flying fish. Namor rightfully labels the torch an insolent brat. Just what I was thinking. But he doesn't want to upset Sue by harming him. So he very maturely... Tells the torch to basically go home, but the torch isn't gonna. And then the torch lassos Namor in flame, but Namor is able to fly, so he flies out of the flame lasso and starts chasing the torch. The torch avoids a collision with an iceberg by flying straight at it and then veering off to the side at the last second, sending Namor right into it. There's no way Namor would be able to move. So Namor uses his little-known power, Kevin. I was going to say, how often does he use his puffer power? His power to mimic all the creatures in the sea. What? (laughs) Yeah, this one doesn't seem to get used as much. He puffs and swells up like a swellfish, which protects him from the impact, and then he's all stuck inside the iceberg, and then he just has to blow out, exhale the air, and then he's back to his normal dimensions and he could just jump right out. <laughs> wow. He, all all the sea creatures, it's pretty handy. Namor then goes and collects some artifacts and a remnant of asbestos. Wow. Take a drink every time asbestos is mentioned. I'm thinking too like him of Namor the day before. Curse you, surface dwellers, for littering the ocean floor with your asbestos. And and now the next day, like, ooh, asbestos. Namor confuses the torch with the hypnotic effect of the artifact. 
and and makes him lower his guard. Then he wraps the asbestos around his fist and punches Torch out. Then he lashes the unconscious and presumably drowning Torch <laughs> to a porpoise and sends him back towards shore. Again, he's not trying to kill the kid. He's just going to send him back home. What's this panel? Johnny flames on while he's still on. While he's still attached to the porpoise. And then he, and then he goes back and, and picks another fight with Namor again. This time, Namor uses the power of an electrical eel to match the torch's flame. And finally, the torch goes supernova, where he can actually fly underwater with his flame... I guess boiling and evaporating the water around him. So it, I don't know how that works with the oxygen and the whatever. But anyway, the torch goes supernova and he chases Namor underwater into a cave that then collapses around Namor. And the torch, pretty satisfied with this apparent murder of Namor, swims to the surface, victorious, but stranded floating out in the middle of open water without his flame totally exhausted but here comes a boat and it's the same guys from before hey guys it's me the torch and they take him aboard and take him home to bed better to be lucky than good steve namor on the other hand he's got to drill his way free of his rocky tomb by swimming really fast with a rotary motion. Thanks again, winged ankles, you know? Yeah, what what uh, sea creature is, is he doing there? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's funny that the torch, long gone from the scene, misses that Namor gives him the very credit and respect that Johnny was looking for all along. He's like, you know, what a mighty foe he'll be when he reaches full maturity and perhaps someday we can be a team and rule the world and that kind of thing. Perhaps. Namor does love a good team. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, there were 35 of these things. Of these <laughs> torch stories. And this is just the first fifth of the ones that appeared during this Strange Tales run. I think they're really fun and refreshing, and I, I almost think like every six months or so we should revisit another chunk of a few of these just to put comics back into the proper perspective. For sure. There's lots of great lots of great stuff happening in the Strange Tales book. That's for sure. we got to get to at least 110. Abe. For sure. And first appearance of Beetle, yeah. Because 110 is the expensive book, because it's the first appearance of the wizard and the Pace Pop Pete teaming up to form the prototype of the Frightful Four. But like, and I know I made the Archie analogy early, but very much like Archie stories, there's only too many of these things you can read. <laughs> before you know, and having the complete collection all together, it's it's a bit of a and I think I used this metaphor earlier too, is a bit of a rabbit hole um, that uh, it can be tough to, um, you know, you start skipping, you start skimming through things and not stopping and smelling the roses. And I think stepping away from it and coming back to it would be fun to do. But I'm so happy that we finally delved into these things because, like I said, I've been these are amongst the first comic book stories I ever read. I just find them 
a lot of fun and real charming, and I just love the Kirby faces on these old characters like the Wizard and Pastepot Pete. Man, I'm like you, Andrew. I just love Pastepot Pete. Why not? That's such a great, impossible character. It's a shame they didn't do more with him, though. That his that character died a few years later, never to be heard from again. What? Yeah, it's gone. Pete's Pop Pete. He only had a handful of appearances, and then I don't know whatever happened with that character. Come on, as far that... as I'm concerned, he he was gone, never to be heard from. No, no love for the trapster, huh? I do not recognize that name, Steve. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? The trapster does not exist. And on that note, we'll wrap up this episode of Marvel Noise. Thanks for taking this journey with us through these Marvel tales, these strange tales, if you will. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Andrew, for reading some new books and sharing them and for talking the talk with me while we walk this walk. Peter Petruski is space pop. Peep, peep, peep. That's a lot of pee. All right, until someone gets the bright idea to portray the wizard as an actual wizard, make mine marvel. Later. <laughs>